And now we'll read from the New Testament. So we're reading from Matthew 25, 1 to 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry ran out. There is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may, be, may not be enough for both of us and for you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Thanks for reading, Sarah, and good morning, everyone. Keep your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 25. Now, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, knowing how the arrival of the bridegroom could be uncertain, all of them exercised great care to bring extra oil with them. So when the bridegroom was delayed, they all fell asleep, but at midnight there was a shout, Look, the bridegroom is here, come out and meet him. Then all the ten virgins woke up, greeted the bridegroom, and they all went inside with him to enjoy the wedding feast. Now, that would have been a fine story, wouldn't it? A happy ending, a story about being prepared with a fitting happy ending story. And weddings are meant to be happy. Uh, but that's not how Jesus' parable works, doesn't it? Jesus' parables are often very different. It's puzzling. And that's what all the parables of Jesus actually have in common. Uh, if you're not puzzled by the parables as you read it, you're probably reading it wrong. Uh, it's meant to puzzle, slow you down, and prompt questions. And in doing so, what the parables does is that it, it reveals the identity of Christ and the nature of the kingdom, nature of his power. The parables are means by which Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures and fulfilling God's plan. And in this revelation, parables provoke a, a crisis or decision-making time for all its hearers. And this is very important to understand about the parables as we read them uh, this week and the next two weeks, uh, final uh, few weeks of the series, because the parables are not just meant to be an interesting story for the hearers, but it's meant to move you. Once you hear the parables, you can't remain neutral. You'll either respond to what the parable is provoking positively, or you'll reject it negatively. And today's parable is no exception. The bridegroom is coming, and you cannot be indifferent about his coming. Because he will not be indifferent about his coming. 
So with that in mind, let's read the parable again. Uh, uh, on the couple of the subheadings there for you, if you want to follow through the outline. Uh, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or what we might call bridesmaids, who took their lambs and went to meet the bridegroom. Uh, now, wedding is an imagery frequently used throughout the gospel to depict the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? A couple of chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus already gave another parable in this way. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Uh, do you ever wonder what heaven will be like? Do you want to know what the end of the world means? Well, Jesus says it'll be like a royal wedding feast. Uh, think about the grandeur of the occasion, such occasion, right? There'll be plenty of food and drinks, abundant and generous provision of what we enjoy and cherish in life. There'll be friends and family of God to enjoy and share in that joy. And that's what happens at the wedding feast, doesn't it? Uh, what this means is that the end of the world, which has been one of the primary subject of this eschatological discourse in Matthew 23 to 25, end of the world is not the end. The end is only a new beginning. The end of kingdoms of the earth means beginning of a kingdom of heaven. And that's what marriage symbolizes, doesn't it? In marriage, we celebrate a new beginning, a beginning of a new life for this couple where they will leave the family that they belong to. So in one sense, old life ends and new life begins in a marriage. When the world ends, kingdom of heaven will consummate in its full glory. And I think that should give us some perspective about the end of the world. Do you ever fear the end of the world? Now, there's always an anxious chatter about the destiny or end of our world, isn't there? Now, without being irresponsible about our world, that's not what I'm saying, but we are to be people who are confident and also, in some sense, those who look forward to the end of the world. Why? Because the end of the world will only usher the beginning of the world. Now, perhaps you don't fear or worry too much about the end of the world per se, but you worry about the end of me. <laughs> I don't care about the end of the world, but I, I care about the end of me. Time's ticking away. I'm getting old. My life's opportunities are running out. The good old days of youth and health are now behind me. But if you know Jesus, if you belong to the bridegroom, that is not the full picture of your future, is it? What waits your end, the end of your history, is a wedding feast with Jesus. That's the first thing to get. Now, if so, everything we do now must take into this account, this reality, seriously. The coming of the bridegroom and his wedding feast. Uh, if this world will not continue forever... If Jesus is wrapping this world up in his return, if the end of your life is not just death, but seeing him, meeting him, then to continue life as though this world is all there is, then to continue life as though you will not see your bridegroom, is an enormous folly. To live for this world alone is to proclaim yourself a fool. 
Yet tragically, this is how so many people live in our world today, and it was the case in this parable also. Now see what Jesus says about some of the versions there in verse 2. Apparently, not all of them took this coming end seriously. Verse 2, five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now, I don't think we should read too much into the numbers here. Five foolish and five wise. It's not intended to say uh, 50% people were wise and 50 was, you know, foolish so that, you know, one of the twins were wise and one of the twins were foolish, whichever you want to take. No, rather, I think the number is simply making the point that not everyone respond rightly. Some were foolish. Now that's not a nice thing to say about someone, is it? Do they really deserve that designation? What did they do? Verse 3, Jesus explains. Why are they foolish? Because when the foolish took their lambs, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lambs. Uh, the, the foolish ones, their folly was that they didn't give care that they should have given to the bridegroom and his coming wedding feast. Uh, you see, the virgins were actually given a very important job to do at the wedding, when the wedding uh, bridegroom comes, to light the lamp at the return of the bridegroom. Uh, it seems to have been a common practice at the time for the bridegroom to go to the bride's house, uh, have the kind of introductory feast there with the bride, bride's family, and then to return to his house with the bride uh, to kind of climax the wedding feast occasion. Something like that, or some variation of that, seems to have been fairly common according to the historians. So these ten versions were to prepare and light the way of the bridegroom when he returns with his bride, or for his bride. Yet the foolish virgins neglected the only means by which they could do what they were called to do. They took no oil. Now at this point, some of you may have you know, lots of questions about uh, what each of these materials symbolize. You know, what does the lamp symbolize? What does the oil mean? And so on. And throughout church history, uh, all sorts of suggestions have been made about it. So the lamp symbolizes uh, something similar to the Sermon on the Mount. We are to be the light of the world. The oil stands for faith, love, or, or primarily the Holy Spirit, which has been the popular interpretive choice. I, I think they are true in light of the, big, uh, the, the whole teaching of the scripture, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at in this parable. Yes, we are to be the light of the world, and we can only be the light of the world by the power of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But not every single feature in the parables are encoded with hidden meaning. That's not always how parables work. As Jesus said earlier in verse 1, the whole story's plot illuminates the meaning, the main point that Jesus is trying to get at. So I think the oil in this parable means, are you ready? Oil. (laughs) In other words, what I'm saying is, what's important to understand in this parable is not the hidden meaning behind the oil, but what the lack of oil represents in the story. Do you get that? You see the difference? Uh, That is, the five foolish virgins' lack of preparation and care. That's what it represents, doesn't it? That, that they didn't take oil. They didn't take their job seriously. They didn't think this, important, uh, this occasion as important. And doing so by their actions, it actually reveals the biggest problem of their heart. 
they reveal a casual and contemptuous attitude towards the bridegroom. The bridegroom, that they take him so lightly that they did not care to take seriously of their job. This is not some well-meaning girls making innocent mistakes. Rather, they are very foolish. And if we are reading this parable in light of the other parable in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew chapter 7, because there is a lot of verbal parallels there, wise, foolish, and so on, uh, there, Jesus says, evil, the workers of lawlessness. Such attitude, the casual attitude towards God's royal bridegroom is foolish and evil. Now, I don't know whether you think of yourself as smart. According to one research, 98% of the population think that they have an above average IQ. 98%. I feel for that 2% who has a very low self-esteem. And apparently 95% of the population think that they have an above average looks. <laughs> I thought it was just me, but you all think you're above. So who, who is the average here? Then, then listen to how this study ends, right? It says, I quote, Essentially, low-ability people do not possess the required skills to recognize their own incompetence. The combination of poor self-awareness and low cognitive ability leads them to overestimate their own capabilities. End quote. Now, be that as it may be, according to Jesus, your wisdom is ultimately not measured by your IQ or EQ, but by your attitude towards Jesus Christ and his promises. Now, according to that standard, are you a wise person or foolish person this morning? You see, you could be unsuccessful, unintelligent, under the average IQ or social status, or whatever your outward appearance is. You could be a humble child who doesn't know much, who doesn't have much to show to the world, but profoundly wise in the sight of God, if you have the right attitude towards Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you could be the smartest person in the world, person that everyone quotes, person who has many books published under their names, person has millions of followers online, yet be a dumb fool in the sight of God. If you have a casual attitude towards Jesus, your creator, your savior, and your coming judge, you are a fool. But taking Jesus at his word, trusting his every promise, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness in your life is always wise. Never doubt that. Keep doing that. And your wisdom will be revealed, will be proclaimed to all creation on the day of his return. But whether we are foolish or wise won't be seen until the end. There will be a delay 
That's what Jesus says in verse 5, isn't it? As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Um, delay, if you notice, is the common theme throughout all the parables in this section of Matthew chapter 25 um, and, and the earlier uh, first parable in chapter 24. So 24 verse 48, the wicked servant thought, my master is delayed. And so what does he do? He begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with the drunkards. In the next parable, which we'll look at next week, the master goes away again for a long time in verse 19. Uh, he, the bridegroom, takes his time in coming. Now, the master's delay or his absence presents a challenge in each of these parables. Uh, what happens when the master leaves the house for a long time? You know, uh, you parents know what happens to your house if you delay and leave the house uh, onto the care of your children. Now, something like that, a, a chaos resumes. Now, those who truly love the master and long to serve him will give him their due, whether he's there or not. But those who did not love the master only pay lip service to him, takes advantage of the situation. They take his absence to mean that the master is no longer in charge. But here is the thing to remember. This is what the parable is getting at again. His delay does not mean that he's lost the plot or he's no longer in charge. The delay does not mean that the wedding is canceled. Wedding is sure. The bridegroom is coming. Uh, brothers and sisters, all sorts of things in our life may get canceled. Is that right? Your hopes and dreams and aspirations may not come to fruition dare I say, will not all come to fruition. We are too weak for that. Life is too short for that. We're too limited. We're so, uh, too many things in life are not under our control, is it? But the wedding of the Son of God will never be cancelled and the bridegroom will never lose charge. COVID outbreak won't stop it like it did with many other weddings last year. Nothing, not even death, will cancel this wedding feast. Now, if you're going to bank your life on one thing, well, why don't you bank on something that is certain? According to Jesus, the one sure certainty of the future that you can bank your life on is that the bridegroom will return. And that's what the ten virgins found out in this story. Look at verse 6. At midnight, the middle of the night, after the long delay, time will come. And there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, he's here, he's in charge, he hasn't forgotten, wedding isn't cancelled, so come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Uh, we're not told in great detail what thoughts may have gone through the ten virgins' mind at this point. It's a bit of a guesswork, isn't it? Uh, parables also often leave a bit of a gap. Uh, draw you in, getting you to uh, imagine and engage with the story. Now we can imagine the joy and gladness of the wise versions, can't we? They took great care of their responsibility. They respected the bridegroom. They trusted his word that he is coming. The wise girls must have been out on their feet rejoicing. Finally, the night has gone. Time has come. Let's get our lamps ready. Let's light the path of the bridegroom. Rejoice with him. But the ones who didn't take their responsibility seriously, well, 
they would have been surprised, wouldn't they? Perhaps they thought the wedding was cancelled. Maybe they overheard there was a new case in the Nazareth, and then there'd be a new lockdown so that the bridegroom cannot come again. Bit of a 2021 reading. Now that the bridegroom has returned, actually, though, they knew they were in trouble. So in a desperate attempt, the foolish virgin said to the wise virgins in verse 8, the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. End day preparation is not transferable, you see? Because what will be revealed in the end is who you are, your inner reality. See, that's a, a very popular and common Matthewan theme throughout Matthew's gospel. Outer reality and inner reality. That Pharisaic righteousness that, that seems good on the outside but is empty inside. And you see that in these ten versions. Uh, outwardly, they all have lamps. Until the time comes for it to use, it all looks like good lamps. They all have the wedding invitation, it seems. They all have the church membership. They, come, they attend the service. Perhaps they also take the Lord's Supper. They do religious things. Outwardly, all of them seem to believe the bridegroom and belong to the wedding feast. But the foolish virgin's inner reality is revealed by their empty lamp. The lamp doesn't work. Their empty lamps show that they never truly believed or obedient to the bridegroom. Inner transformation must be expressed in outward formation, inner affection to outward action. That's what Matthew has been teaching all throughout his gospel. And being prepared is not transferable. You either have the inner reality or you don't. No one can believe in Jesus Christ for you. Your family can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. Your husband can't do it for you. Your wife can't do it for you. How do you know whether you're prepared for the Lord's return or not? A good question to think about and answer for yourself this morning is, well, are you following Jesus today? Are you a Christian today? Not yesterday, or not when you were part of a university campus Bible study group, but are you responding to Jesus today as your Lord and Savior? Are you building your life upon his words? Or are you carrying around empty lamps? Empty lamps that looks like Christian veneer on the outside. But in a reality, truly, what you cherish and your master is something other than Jesus Christ. When he comes, it will be revealed. And at that time, it will be too late. That's what these five uh, foolish versions finds out, uh, don't they? In verse 10, uh, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him. 
to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, truly I say to you, I do not know you. That's a great tragedy, isn't it? The foolish virgins will not partake in the marriage feast. Oh, they still pay the lip service. Lord, Lord. With their mouth. They say, Master, Master. Again, their words echo the words of the workers of lawlessness in the Sermon on the Mount. The emptiness of their words are revealed by the Lord's reply. I do not know you. They have never known or trusted Jesus. And in return, the Lord says, I have never known you. Now, someone may say at this point, isn't that a bit harsh? Is there no second chance with Jesus? Hey, calling him, Lord, Lord, open it for us. But the truth is, Jesus has given them enough chance. These foolish virgins had all night and all day long to prepare themselves. And that is true for you and I, isn't it? Jesus has given you and I, in truth, more than second chance. Uh, we are so foolish and dull that we need more than two chances, actually. He gives us a chance each day of our life. He is giving you a chance today, isn't he? The reason why he hasn't come back yet, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, is because he is granting you a chance to repent, not wishing that you perish. So actually, the question to ask and think is, what are you doing with the chance he is giving you today? Are you squandering it again? Like those foolish versions. Time will come when Jesus will wrap up everything in history and return to judge the living and the dead, and if you have squandered and rejected his gracious, gracious invitation time after time, day after day, ignoring his words, being casual about his claims, being indifferent to his kingdom, well, you're not going to have any part in his kingdom, are you? Uh, friends, what is your worst nightmare about the future? What's something that if it was to happen in your life in the future, that would be an absolute tragedy, that would really break you? Uh, perhaps, you know, what if you found out tomorrow that you have a terminal illness? That would be very tragic. Uh, or get into a tragic car accident. Have a terminal disability. What if you lose your job or your ability? Everything that you lived for disappears. They are all terrible possibilities, aren't they? And may the Lord be gracious upon us and have mercy upon us and spare all of us from that. But you see, according to Jesus in this parable, the greatest tragedy that could happen in your future is not impersonal but personal. See, often what we fear in life are impersonal forces, isn't it? tragedy happening to us but the greatest tragedy is actually personal 
greatest tragedy that could happen in your future is your Savior returning to usher in the new creation where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more mourning, where he will invite the people of God from history to everlasting to everlasting, welcoming in, and he looks at you and says, I do not know you. That will be a horrifying tragedy, wouldn't it? To see your Savior and Creator, Redeemer and Judge return in glory, personally, visibly. To, to begin what the whole creation and angels have longed forward to, the new creation. Yet he looks at you and says, I do not know you. God forbid that that would happen to any of you here today. But if we want to avoid facing such tragedy, Jesus says in verse 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, watch doesn't mean uh, look out the window at night, as if, as if don't ever go to sleep and just watch and wait for Jesus' return. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleeping at night. The wise ones sleep too here in this parable. Now, that's how God made you. Uh, the Lord is the only one who neither sleeps nor slumber. Uh, going to sleep at night, you know, it's almost like a picture of death. You, you're so vulnerable when you sleep, isn't it? You're not in control of your life. It's actually a great expression of your trust in God, that you can go to sleep knowing that you're not the center of the universe. God can run the world while you're sleeping still. And when you wake up, the world will be even a better place because you slept. But watching means to be spiritually awake. Uh, that's how the Apostle Paul would later use the language in his epistles. In other words, it is to be alive and be alert to Christ and his gospel promises. In the context of Matthew 24 and 25, it is to be alert to the fact that contrary to appearances, Jesus is the Lord. He is the King. Heaven is here already, inaugurating. His absence doesn't mean that he has been cancelled. He is in charge. He rules today and he will return. Now, this was the case for Jesus' first disciples when he was arrested and put to death on that cursed cross. It looks like the wedding was cancelled. It looks like the master will never return. It looks like he was no longer in charge. But he did come as the lightning comes, the Son of Man comes in power in his resurrection glory. And the same is true for our time today after his ascension, isn't it? At present, it seems as though Jesus is no longer in charge. Jesus seems absent. But he says, watch, be alert to the fact that the Son of Man is risen, he has ascended, he is seated at God's right hand. From there, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, the Apostle Paul puts what watching means or what, what watching may look like uh, in this way in Colossians 3, using a slightly different language, but nevertheless speaking about the same reality. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Watch, see, where Christ is and seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, watch, lift your eyes on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. <coughs> then he explains further what watching would entail in your earthly life today. As you are watchful of that heavenly reality, as you keep setting your mind on things that are above, he says, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Instead, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That is how we are to watch, isn't it? Uh, and if you watch like that, brothers and sisters, lifting your eyes to the risen Lord, putting to death what is earthly in you, and putting on what is heavenly, then there I say there is a sense in which you will not be surprised when he returns because you are ready. Uh, unlike the foolish ones, you won't be surprised. You won't be caught off guard because what that day will reveal is what is already true today. You already belong to Jesus Christ. Your life is already hidden within. And you are watching that reality and putting into practice each day Becoming who you are. And on that great day, who you are, your wisdom, your goodness in Christ, will be revealed fully. And that day will be a wonderful day, wouldn't it? A day worth living for, a day worth waiting for, a day worth even dying for. To see your glorious Savior return and to hear from his lips. Welcome, my beloved. Come and rejoice with me. Enjoy the wedding feast. Uh, to hear from him, see him face to face, and to hear from his mouth and his lips. Hankley, come in. I know you by name. You belong to me and you are forever mine. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, don't you want to hear that? I mean, obviously, re replace your name with my name. I mean, I want to I hear Hank Lee, but, but I'm, I'm guessing you want to hear your name. Now replace that name. And that will be worth longing for. Now, let's conclude. I want to finish today's talk with three take-home points. I'm kind of copying uh, Isaac's take-home points because uh, he did the family spot. Uh, first, nothing will cancel the coming of the Son of Man. Nothing will cancel his wedding feast. And you can bank your life on that. You can and you should build your life with that in view. Second point, but not everyone who appeared to be waiting for that wedding day will get in. Those who pay lip service to Jesus while their heart is worshipping other gods 
will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. God will not be fooled. And what you will hear from him is, you fool. Finally, nothing can surprise you if you watch. Don't be worried. You won't be surprised if you watch him. If you take Jesus at his word, be alive and be alert to his lordship, setting your mind on things that are above, what he has done for you, clinging on to his promise, you will not be surprised. Or perhaps there will only be a surprise of joy and gladness at his return. On that day, may he say to you, you are mine, I know you. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who came in humility to seek and save the lost, to proclaim your justice and mercy, and to invite those who do not deserve your favor to the eternal marriage feast in your everlasting kingdom through his ministry. We confess before you, Father, that we are undeserving of your passionate and patient love. Instead of faithfully and patiently watching and adorning our lives in godliness, we grasp what we crave and follow the desires of our own hearts. We find it hard to wait for you to answer our prayers, to give us what we need, to relieve our suffering, so we do what it feels like that is right for us. Father, forgive us by your Son, who came to give his life as a ransom for us, and now lift our eyes to him who is seated at your right hand, Help us to be alive and be alert to his present rule and future certain return and enable us to live a life that is devoted to him. Tune our hearts and minds to be faithful to him, trusting his every word, obeying his every command, serving his every purpose with joy and perseverance so that when he returns to usher in the glorious kingdom of heaven, our life at present hidden with him will also appear with him in his glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen, conquering, and returning Savior. Amen.